Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and it's just me today. We're going to do something a little different. I want to talk about something that uh, is, while not directly related to clinical care, I think actually very intertwined with it. And this came from actually one of my current interns who will be a CA1 with us next year. And he suggested this idea of talking about the transition from being an intern to being a CA1 in anesthesia. So that will be kind of the focus. But I do want to say that I think a lot of what I'm going to talk about in terms of advice for kind of how to handle these kinds of transitions is applicable to any major transition. That could be uh, if you're in a different field. It could be in anesthesia when you're going from training, whether that's residency or fellowship, into practice, whether that's a private group or into an academic faculty position. These kinds of major transitions, uh, moving to a different city, accepting a different job, these kinds of major transitions, I think, share a lot of similar stressors and can have a lot of similar ways in which we can help people who are feeling those stressors and people can help themselves. And so I want to talk about that transition from intern year to CA1 year and what it tells us about transitions in general. So first, let's start um, with that specific transition. And I want to say up front that I'm very interested to hear what others have to say about this. So please go to the website, ACRAC.com, join us on Twitter at ACRAC Podcast and at Jay Wolpaw or at the Facebook group for ACRAC. So you can let us know what you think about this. There are, I'm sure, people who have developed other uh, recommendations that would be helpful to people making these kinds of transitions. So I am not the only one who can share ideas here. I'd love to hear what other folks have to say. All right. So I think part of the reason that this is a difficult transition uh, from intern year to CA1 year is that, and this is true of a lot of transitions like this, you know, you develop some expertise. You feel pretty good about stuff, right? So you're doing your intern year, and yeah, people do different. Some people do an internal medicine prelim, which is pretty common in anesthesia. Some may do a transitional year. Some may even do a surgical year. But regardless, after a year of doing something, you feel pretty good. You've developed some amount of expertise. You've gotten to know the nursing staff, the, your colleagues there. You know how to call a consult. You know where the bathrooms are. You know where the call rooms are. You know how to make things happen in an efficient way. You're pretty good. People respect you. They look to you for uh, help and advice, and you feel pretty good about that. And then you arrive in a new place where you know none of that stuff. And that's really hard just in general to go from having some amount of expertise to having none or very little. But I think it's exacerbated in this transition in anesthesia, though I would imagine it's similar in other fields that have a separate intern year, because you now come in and you're still a doctor. You're still doing doctoring things. You're still a resident. Uh, and yet you went from being someone who was looked to and respected and had some level of expertise to someone who is at the very bottom of the totem pole and doesn't know much of anything about what's going on in anesthesia specifically. And that's hard. All of a sudden, the nurses in the operating room, right? You used to just have this great relationship with nurses in your intern year, and now these nurses in the operating room, they don't really know you or trust you or uh, you know think of you in, in, as an expert in any way. The surgeons, right? Again, you're new. They've never worked with you before. They may know you're a brand new CA1, and so they don't have a huge amount of confidence in you. They may, for example, call, want you to call your attending for stressful parts of the cases where you, know, you had gotten to a point at the end of intern year where you were pretty self-sufficient without having a lot of attending supervision. And so it feels like you've taken this huge step back. And even if logically you can tell yourself, 
look, I know I'm now doing something new. It still feels tough to have felt like you put in the work for a year to get to a pretty good place, and now you've gone backwards. I had a great discussion with actually an applicant um, recently who gave me this really uh, interesting example of another type of transition like this. So she told me about the time when she was a star on her high school soccer team. She was recruited to play soccer in college. She got to college and she sat the bench. She did not start. And she found that to be so difficult to deal with. She was used to being the star of the team, and now she wasn't even starting, and some games not even playing at all. And it was a really tough transition. It felt terrible. And so what she had to learn, and these are her words and I loved them, was to be a sponge that year. She had to learn to be a sponge so that she would just soak up all the learning she could, give back to the team any way she could, help the starters be better at their job, and she would sponge up everything over the course of that year. And then, of course, she did go on to play quite a lot, actually, to be an excellent player on that team and even the team captain. So I love that as an example. It's not exactly the same, but there's enough similarities. I think it's instructive that when you become a CA1, you want to think of yourself as a sponge again, which is how you hopefully thought of yourself as a brand new intern. You want to not worry about being the expert, about being the you know someone that people go to for, for expertise right away. You just want to learn everything you can and trust that you will eventually, and it may take a year again until you get to a point where you're feeling pretty good about your knowledge and skills. It may even take more than that. But remember, that's why it's a three-year residency, right? If you could be a total expert in a year or with just an intern year, show up and be an expert, then you wouldn't need that time. So we'll talk more about how I think training programs need to have that as a centerpiece of their culture. But I think from a trainee point of view, that's really important is to realize this is normal, it doesn't mean it's going to feel good, and I can't. I wish I could, but I wish I, I, I can't make it feel uh, good to be in that position. But I think if you realize that you know, that's how everybody feels as a new CA1 and that's just a, a part of how it is, that makes it a little bit more tolerable. So let me talk about some common mistakes I think that people make when they arrive for this new transition to CA one year. And as I said, I think a lot of these are mistakes people make in general when they're, when they're making a transition. So one is to assume that because things are tough at the time of the beginning of that transition, because it doesn't feel good to be a total beginner again, that those feelings of not being happy and not being happy compared to how how you felt pretty good maybe at the end of intern year, at least in terms of your expertise, that that must mean that you that either there's something wrong with you, meaning you're not a good doctor or you've lost something, or that this field, in this case anesthesia, isn't right for you. And I think those are mistakes to make. And it's not to say that it isn't possible that you could have chosen a field that isn't right, and people do occasionally switch out of anesthesia. But I think that to assume that because two, three months into CA1 year, you aren't feeling great about your progress and you feel worse than you did at the end of your intern year to think, oh, therefore, I I should have stayed there in internal medicine or in surgery. This was a mistake to do anesthesia. I think that's a mistake. You want to realize that it's a normal part of the transition to struggle and to have those feelings of inadequacy at first because you are a beginner again. We just aren't good at 
at enjoying or embracing that feeling of being a beginner again. And so we react to that feeling of being a beginner to feel like I have somehow now taken a step back, failed, I'm not doing the right thing. So I would say that you need to give it some time and understand that that's where everybody is. So that's one mistake. Another is to, uh, some people will end up kind of compensating for their feeling of insecurity and their feeling of, of frustration with being, uh, with not knowing things by acting like they know more than they do or they're more of an expert than they are. So we'll talk more about the imposter syndrome in a minute, but that is kind of part of where this comes from. People feel like they don't know what they're doing and so ra- and they don't want to make that worse by you know, admitting they don't know or asking questions. And so they will act like they know more or be adamant about what they sit- think they know. These are the people who, you know, when a nurse in the ICU makes a suggestion or maybe asks a question about a plan, they bristle and think, hopefully they don't say, although some people do say this, but hopefully they they don't. But whether they're saying it or thinking it, they're thinking, you know, you're challenging my, my, my abilities as a doctor and I need to stand up and I need to say, I'm the doctor here, right? But that's not... That's because, you know, of the insecurity of feeling like you're not sure. But to compensate for that, you kind of take this stand and think, I'm going to, you know, really stick to my guns because I have to or else I'll look weak, right? That's a huge mistake. There's nothing better than embracing – remember the sponge analogy, right? You want to learn everything you can from your attendings, from the nurses, from the respiratory therapists, from the CCTs, everything you can possibly learn. And so – the idea that you will resist any of that learning because it somehow challenges your expertise is a big mistake. You really want to be open to the fact that you don't know a lot and you're not supposed to because you're a new trainee in anesthesia. Another mistake people make is they don't ask questions or seek feedback, again, because of this fear of being revealed, right, of this imposter syndrome. We'll talk more about that. But to, to not go on and really try to get all the feedback you can. So part of this is people are afraid to ask questions because they think if I ask that question, it reveals I don't know that thing. And if I don't know that thing, someone's going to think, what's he or she doing here? They're supposed to know that thing. So that's one reason people don't do it. But the other is, I think just from a sense of, of mental exhaustion sometimes, that you think you're feeling overwhelmed with the learning and so you don't want to seek out more. And sometimes that's okay. You can't always you know, learn everything there is to learn in any given situation. But I think if we we move our thinking orientation and think instead of I'm I need to be on top of everything or else I'm failing if we change that to think I just want to figure out how much stuff I can possibly figure out even if I don't learn it all in a day even if I have to ask that same question again tomorrow or next week I'm still kind of excited that I got to hear it the first time cuz it's just something else I can add to my knowledge base over time that's really an important way to think about it. Now, I will be the first to admit we need to structure our training in a way to help trainees feel good about that kind of mindset, and we'll talk about that more in a minute. All right, so those are some common mistakes. What are the causes of these mistakes and the causes of the difficulty in transition? So there are a lot, but let's just talk about a few. One I mentioned a few times already is the imposter syndrome. So I'm sure everyone's heard of that, but just in case, let me explain. What is the imposter syndrome? The imposter syndrome is the idea that I feel like I am an imposter, but nobody else knows it yet, meaning I don't think I'm good enough to be in the position I'm in. Somebody made a mistake by hiring me. My boss made a mistake. 
she, if she really knew that I don't know a lot of stuff or that I'm not that experienced or that I'm not that good at stuff, she wouldn't have hired me. So she made a mistake and I'm an imposter here in my job. And if somebody finds out, if I ask too many questions and they realize I don't know this stuff they think I know, or if I admit that I don't know it, or if I make too many mistakes, people are going to then realize, they will discover that I am in fact an imposter and they, that I don't belong and that they will then get rid of me. So that is the imposter syndrome. And what is amazing, if you're someone who, who looks at this and asks questions about this, and if you're in a position like I am of being a training program director where you, you see this a lot, it is unbelievable how pervasive it is. And one thing I have learned is that it's not only trainees. The imposter syndrome exists, as far as I can tell, in pretty much everyone in medicine, even senior folks, even senior folks. In fact, one of my mentors told me that when he got the call that he was being made a full professor, he thought they were calling the wrong person. He thought that they had meant to call someone else with a similar last name because he thought not only that he didn't deserve to be a full professor, but that it was actually like just a matter of time till they figured out he wasn't good enough to ever be a full professor, right? He still had that feeling of being an imposter in his role, even though a place like Johns Hopkins, which is not someone a place that gives away full professorships easily, uh, was convinced and in fact did make him a full professor. So that that is widespread, and that's one of the major causes of why it's so difficult because you feel like you're an imposter, and that makes it really difficult to open up, learn, ask questions, etc. Another cause is that, and it's related, of course, that. We in medicine tend to have a performance-oriented culture rather than a learning-oriented culture. And I heard this great talk recently by Keith Baker, who is the vice chair for education in the Department of Anesthesia at Massachusetts General Hospital. And he's really a guru of feedback and learning. And I heard this great talk he gave, and he talked about this exact thing, that there's really good data out there on how some people are performance-oriented and some are learning-oriented, and it really affects how you approach learning and feedback. But I'm going to take that a little differently and, and say that while I think that's definitely true of individuals, I think that in medicine, we tend to have a culture that's so geared towards performance orientation that it pushes people to be that way. And what does that mean? So performance-oriented people care about their performance and the evaluation of that performance. They, are, they don't want to be challenged because a challenge means they might fail. And if they fail, they're going to look bad. Their performance won't be good. So they would rather have just the easiest tasks, which they can knock out of the park, so they perform well, they look good, they get feedback that says, you're amazing, you did an amazing job. That's what they want. Whereas a learner, someone who's learner-oriented, learning-oriented, wants to find out what they can do better. They, would, they don't want feedback that says, you're amazing, you're fantastic. They want to be challenged so they can make a mistake, so they can figure out how to work and become better at that. The problem is that while we may all kind of wish to be able to be learner-oriented, when the culture is one where people are so concerned that they're being evaluated all the time that they have to worry about their performance because they're worried if they make a mistake, they're going to be evaluated poorly and that's going to affect their career, that pushes people toward a performance orientation. So we'll talk more about that, but that's one of the causes. 
And then I think the other cause I'll mention is that there is a culture in medicine and in anesthesia of kind of forgetting what it's like to be a new CA1. One of my mentors, Dan Lowenstein, who did a prior podcast episode with, talks about the med school, med student suppressor gene, how people, once they're out of medical school, will turn on their med student suppressor gene. They'll forget what it's like to be a medical student and how hard that was, and therefore they will treat medical students badly. Similarly, I believe there's a residency suppressor gene. So people get out of residency, they forget how hard it was and how much they hated being mistreated. And then they go ahead and mistreat residents. So we need to not turn on those things. And where this plays out is people forget that when you're a brand new CA1, you don't know much about anesthesia and you're not very good at anesthesia stuff. And so when a trainee makes a mistake, faculty will often, or they do, or the trainee does something, you know, uh, that, or demonstrates lack of knowledge, faculty sometimes will say, oh, they're, you know, they're, they're, I'm concerned. This resident is, is not doing what they're supposed to do. And yet they forget that when they were a brand new CA1, they didn't know that either. So I think we really need to, to remember and create a culture where really throughout training, but certainly through the beginning and, and through CA1 year, where any mistake, any lack of knowledge is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for learning. This is something that my wife and I really try to impart with our children too, that we want them to believe mistakes, for example, on their homework are good things because it's an opportunity for learning. But man, even with young kids, it's a hard thing for them to internalize. And when you've crystallized a, a mentality by the time you're an adult, uh, where you really have a hard time with that, it makes it a lot more challenging. So I think it has to start with our programs, our faculty, where we have to really build that mindset through faculty development and through practice of approaching our learners, especially our youngest learners, by saying, you know, look, I'm glad you made that mistake because if you hadn't, I wouldn't have known what to tell you to help 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 you, what how to help you work on something. But now I'm glad that happened because man, I'm telling you, I made the same mistake when I was your when I was at your level and now we've got something we can talk about how to do better. Right? That's the approach you want to take. So let's now end by talking about some solutions to these problems. So when we talk about the imposter syndrome, the only way we're going to be able to defeat this is to talk about our failures and admit when we don't know something. This is super powerful for trainees to hear. If they hear their faculty, especially their senior faculty, talking about how they still don't know things, how they have had failures and still survive, this has actually been looked at in terms of affecting burnout. And it is a, a positive effect. It helps reduce burnout in trainees when they hear uh, what are called war stories. In other words, they hear difficult times involving things that were hard and where, where their faculty maybe even had failures, and yet they see that that faculty member survived, made it through, and was successful. So it's really powerful for trainees to hear. We have to, as faculty, admit it. Trainees, I would hope, would also do it, but it's a lot harder. So I think as faculty, we have to model that. We have to talk about times we failed. We have to talk about times we haven't known something. We have to model it. So uh, one of my colleagues, Dan Sanawi Kanefka, recently was telling a story about uh, when he does, when he's in the OR and let's say they're, you know, doing a spinal and he can't get it and the resident can't get it. He'll say, you know, let's, you know, I can't get this. Uh, let's think about who we could call who might be able to help us. 
And I love that because that's exactly what we need to model. We need, you know, the temptation as faculty is to is to want our residents to see us as all knowing and as always right. Because of course, remember, we have that imposter syndrome too. I absolutely understand that feeling of, oh my goodness, if I admit to my resident that I don't know this thing they just asked me about, then they're going to think, what's this guy doing as program director? He shouldn't be a program director. He doesn't even know the answer to this question. So I get that that exists, but we have to fight against that. So I want my response, rather than you know making something up, I want my response to be able to say to that resident, you know, it's a great question, and I don't know the answer, but I wish I did. Let's see. Maybe we can look it up together. What, maybe somebody we can think of, somebody who might know the answer. We've got to model that so that our, our trainees think, oh, yeah, that's, uh, it's okay not to know. And especially as program directors and assistant program directors and fellowship directors, if we model to our trainees that it's okay when we don't know something, then hopefully they'll feel more comfortable admitting what they don't know. Another important solution here I already mentioned is that we really need to embrace and support the mistakes our trainees make. That same mindset I said that we try to bring to our children of saying, you know, I'm glad to see this mistake. I'm glad to see that this happened. I'm actually glad, believe it or not, because remember, your trainee is going to be really distraught. They made a mistake or a medical error or they didn't know something. And you, you, know, you want to say to them, you know, look, I can see that you're worried about this, but man, look, I'm glad that you didn't know that because, you know, again, I needed something that I could help you with, right? Now you've made my job easier because now, great, let's talk about this. Let's talk about what we would do next time. Um, and you got to get away from the kind of trying to get them to, to somehow admit that they screwed up this time or, you know, wanting your trainee to, to feel that, you know, feel bad so that they then won't do it again or wanting them to, you know, telling them, you know, to, to tell you, wanting to hear them say that they made a mistake. You know, you got to get away from that. It doesn't really matter, right? You don't need to, them to feel bad about this time. You need them to learn for next time. So you want to shift it to that and say, you know, that's why I'm here. I'm here to be your coach, your teacher. Uh, and so I'm glad, right? I mean, think about a sports coach. A sports coach looks for mistakes, looks for weaknesses so they can help their players build up their strengths and work on those weaknesses. And so we can do the same thing. We can say to our trainees, you know, I see myself as a coach. I am glad that I was able to see you do that thing that you just did because now I can help you improve on that. And that's why you're here. And that's why I'm here, right? Without that, we would have been wasting our time. So that's really key. And then, of course, saying things like, you know, look, I made that same mistake. I did that same thing. I used to do that all the time, right? I took me a long time to learn how to improve on that. So really making it feel okay, building that culture of learning and making it okay to make mistakes. And then another solution, we need to build a learning culture where formative feedback is emphasized. So we have to have structures where we make it known to trainees that the feedback they're getting along the way is formative. It's to help them be better. It's not going to hurt them. So that CA1 who forgets to turn on the blood pressure cuff or forgets to turn on the vent or who gives the wrong dose of a medication and thinks, man, if, if that gets put in my evaluation, you know, three years from now, when I'm asking for letters from my program director for fellowship, they're going to see that and think, oh boy, this is a problem, right? We have to, we have to believe ourselves and then, and then tell our trainees and convince our trainees that it is not, they are not going to be punished for a mistake they've made, especially early on in training. A mistake you make as a CA1 is an opportunity for learning, and that is it. That is all it is, an opportunity for learning. And we have to make sure our trainees believe that so that they are comfortable 
embracing those mistakes, learning from them, asking questions, telling us about the mistakes so we can help them. So we need to build that culture. We need a peer-to-peer support network. This is crucial. I'm really thrilled with and proud of my residents for starting this and building it up. We need a, a system where CA2s and 3s can can talk to the CA1s and when they're feeling when those CA1s 2 or 3 months in are feeling like mm, you know I, I this was a rough transition and I'm not I'm not feeling great about this cuz I don't feel like I'm an expert and I you know I feel like nobody respects my skills that those CA2s and 3s can say hey I was there. Those CA2s can say, look, a year ago, I was in those same shoes. I felt the same way. And trust me, it gets better, right? Because I, as the program director, can say that. I can say, trust me, it gets better. But I th- and I do. But I think it means more coming from someone who just one year ago felt the same way. So that uh, needing to have those CA2s reach out, and this is true, again, not just of the CA1 to the intern to CA1 transition. This is true of any transition. You want in any situation, I would hope that if I took a job uh, you know, in a private practice, that there would be senior partners in that group who would reach out to me throughout my first year and would talk to me about how they felt in that first year, what they knew my struggles were, stuff that was normal to feel and struggle with. That's a huge peer-to-peer support is huge. And I think really every program should have that going on. All right. Lastly, I know I said I was going to end with solutions, but this is part two of solutions. What can learners do? So we've talked about what I think programs and and faculty uh, need to do and the way we need to structure the culture. But what can you, if you're a learner, do in your own approach to try to help bridge this transition and be the most successful, have the most successful experience both in terms of your own happiness and your own building up of knowledge and skills? So we've talked about some of this, but we'll go through it one last time. So I think you really need to embrace what I call the beginner's mind. So there's a concept in Japan called shoshin, and it means beginner's mind. And the idea is that when you're a beginner at something, a brand new beginner, you have a completely open mind. You're not, you're not closed. You're not assuming. You don't think you're supposed to have any expertise. This is like the brand new third-year med student on the wards or maybe your first day of intern year where you didn't it didn't bother you that you had questions and that you didn't know a lot, right? Or the first day of med school, nobody walks into med school on day one and and feels pressure to know everything, right? You know you're not supposed to know things, and so you're okay with that. So the beginner's mind concept is stay with that your whole career. So when you're a CA1, remember, you may feel like you're supposed to know stuff because you're now a PGY2, but embrace the beginner's mind, embrace the idea of not knowing and of being a beginner and keep your mind open, be that sponge. So that's a really important mindset to have. And I, again, as I said, absolutely, we need to have structures that support that. But I think as we, as trainees, that's what you want to have in your mind. Ask tons of questions, advocate for feedback and your own learning. This is really key. If trainees go out there and they just kind of think, well, you know, faculty should give me feedback, so I'm just going to wait around for it. Look, I agree with you. Faculty should give you feedback, but it's not always going to happen. If you advocate for it, it'll happen a lot more. When you're chatting on the phone the night before with your attending, say to them, you know, tomorrow, if you wouldn't mind, I'd love for you to give me some feedback on my central line skills or my A-line skills or my peripheral IVs or, you know, I'm not feeling great about my my mastery of fluid management intraoperatively. If you have some time, I'd love to talk about how you think about fluid management. That 
trainee who asks those questions, who advocates for their learning is going to get a lot more. And, you know, again, you've got to get away from this thought that, well, if I ask about fluid management, then my attending is going to know I don't know about it, and they're probably going to think I should know about it, and they're going to think I'm a bad resident. You've got to get away from that. Trust me, faculty want that kind of guidance. They love when they get asked about something they can talk about. It helps them know how to help the trainee, and faculty want to help you. So advocating for your own learning is great. And then advocating for feedback is huge because faculty will feel a lot of faculty don't give great feedback because they're afraid of hurting the feelings of the resident or of coming off the wrong way and offending somebody. So to get beyond that, if you as the trainee ask for it, then it really makes the faculty member feel more comfortable giving it to you. So that's really key. Believe that your training program appreciates learners who seek learning and that it doesn't make you look like you don't know something you should know. So we've hit on this a few times, but again, programs want learners who advocate for learning. And so you have to believe that it won't make you look bad. It won't make you look like an imposter. If you ask questions, that will be appreciated. Your program director, your faculty will think, well, this is a, this is a really go, this is a go-getter. This resident really is out there looking for their own learning. They're advocating for their learning. They're seeking learning, right? They're looking things up and then asking questions about what they looked up. So that stuff is great. Seek help when you need it. This is really important. So Things are stressful during transitions and in general, residency is stressful at various times, sometimes a lot. So if you're feeling like you need help, seek it out. Don't just let yourself think, well, this just feels terrible and that's how it's supposed to be. Seek help from peers, seek help from your program directors, your family, and think about if you need it, especially if you're really feeling bad or if you're ever having thoughts of you know, not wanting to continue with your life or something like that, then get help any way you can, but certainly all programs have to have free access to mental health care. That's a requirement from the ACGME. So you probably have some sort of faculty and staff assistance program with free access to counselors. Take advantage of that if you need it. But what you what you want to do is realize that those feelings of frustration during a transition are normal. But if you're feeling overwhelmed by those feelings or you're feeling like you can't adequately take care of patients or you're feeling like you're getting burned out because of those feelings, then seek help. Don't just let it go. You have to get help if you need it, and that's really, really important. We, of course, should be looking for that. We should be trying to identify people uh, who may need help. If you have a co-resident who you think may need help, reach out, especially if you think you have a co-resident who may be having suicidal thoughts, reach out. That's really, really key. But even if it's just someone you think is burned out, ask them what you can do to help, encourage them to seek help, and if you're really worried about them, let your program director know so that person can get help. Consider mindfulness. This is another thing. So exercising, things like meditation, yoga, whatever it is that works for you. Now, it's worth trying new stuff. I only recently have started doing some meditation, and I have found that it's great. It really has helped me in my life and to be more mindful and to have a little bit of a buffer between action and reaction. So I highly recommend considering that. I use the app called Headspace, but uh, I think there's others out there. Calm is one. There's a variety. It doesn't matter what you use, but I would encourage you to try that. I think that will help. Exercise uh, to me is just crucial, and I think everyone should be doing some form of exercise. It will help deal with some of these feelings during the transition. And then I think lastly, you know, do everything you can to embrace the not knowing. I know we're all very type A in medicine, and we've, we live in this culture where you know, it's, it's all about knowing all the answers, but embrace the not knowing. We always want the answers. We want to know. We want to know what to expect. We want to be an expert. But if we can be okay 
not knowing, if we can be okay with the questions. And this comes partly from us as programs developing that culture where it's okay not to know, but also from from all of us starting to embrace that idea of being okay with the not knowing, admitting when we don't know, and just living with those questions. And so I'm going to end with a quote uh, from my favorite poet, Rainer Maria Rilke. It's a a quote I think about all the time. I go back to frequently for myself to make sure that I'm remembering to keep an open mind and to, to not give in to that pressure to know all the answers. And the quote is this. It's from uh, the book Letters to a Young Poet. You are so young, so before all beginning, and so I must beg you as much as I can to be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and to learn to love the questions themselves like locked rooms and like books written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. And the secret is this to live everything, live the questions now, perhaps then gradually, without even noticing it, you will live along some distant day into the answers. So that I think is such a powerful quote that addresses those things. It's true not only, of course, in the transition from intern year to CA one year, it's true in all of our career and even all of our lives. I think it's very true in our relationships, in and out of love, when we think about you know, do we need to have all the answers? Who am I supposed to marry? Or, you know, what's the next step in this relationship? Or even in a marriage, you know, what's what's going on? What are the answers uh, to the problems that we're having? Sometimes it's just a matter of stepping back and just being present in the moment and living with those questions and not always pushing yourself to have the answers. And I think that's a really important aspect of this. All right. That is it for the talk on transitions. My random recommendation, I'm going to cheat a little since I just talked about it, but it's going to be check out that book, Letters to a Young Poet by Rainer Maria Rilke. It's not just that one quote. It is full of incredible wisdom. Uh, It's really well written. It's very short, easy, easy to get through. It's all prose. It's not poems. It's one of his prose books, um, but it's really, really worth checking out, Letters to a Young Poet. All right. That is it for today. let us know what you thought. As I said, please go to the website, go to the act, go to the Facebook group, go to the Twitter, uh, and let me know what else. What else helps during transitions, or what did I get wrong? Um, be very happy to hear it. If you're a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It helps others find the show. If you're interested in supporting the making of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot, uh, dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, patreon.com slash ACRAC, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference. You can also make a one-time donation anytime you want by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC. Uh, you uh, would be really helping us out. and We'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much to those who are already patrons and have already made donations. Now, I have a big mea culpa here. I usually thank Brian Park for doing the outlines for some of the episodes. And thank goodness it was pointed out to me that Brian, though, when he started doing this, he was a med student, is now a physician, in fact, has been for a while. So I am embarrassed that I keep saying Brian Park and not Dr. Brian Park. So a big thank you to Dr. Brian Park for his fantastic outlines he does for some of the episodes. Of course, a huge thank you to Kimia Kashkuli, who is not yet a doctor, but soon will be. And then we will have to remember to 
give her the appropriate uh, moniker. Um, so big thank you to both Dr. Brian Park and Kimmy Akash Cooley, and of course to Dr. Dennis Quo, who uh, makes the original music for ACRAC. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that's it for today. Thanks for listening. If you're a new CA1, now three or four months in, hang in there. It does get better. You will be an expert. It just takes some time. For the ACRAC Podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.